Welcome back, friends, to the George Sanders Show. It's our first show of the 2014 season. Uh, very happy to be back uh, after two weeks off. Uh, we, we're actually going to be talking about a new movie for once on the show, which I think is uh, unprecedented. No, actually, we, we've, done, we've done it a couple, but it's been a long time. They're usually we'll just, the weird new movies. That's true. Like, this is a, a more major new movie. Yeah. Yeah. This week we will be discussing Martin Scorsese's uh, su- somewhat surprisingly controversial Wolf of Wall Street, uh, starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, we'll be pairing that with another three-hour film about greed and uh, the world of high finance. Uh, 1928's L'Argent from hen- uh, director Marcel Lerbier. We'll also be discussing uh, our Cinema Central money movies and talking about the career of Martin Scorsese uh, at large, as it were. Uh, with me, as always, is Sean Gilman. Hello, Sean. Hello, Mike. Are you sitting in a closet right now? I am not. I am sitting <laughs> in my library. Not for long, though. It's well, not long, it's not long for, for the rest world. of this podcast, for sure, but it may not be my library for much longer. That's right. Sean's looking to move, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Uh, moving on up. It's good to hear from you. It's, you know, you... I think it's it. We should let it be known that you and I are strictly professionals. We don't have any relationship outside of the podcast. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, if I wasn't getting paid for this, I wouldn't be you know talking to you at all. Um, by the way, I'm getting paid for this. Uh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I make my living. That's right. My girlfriend gives me twenty bucks to hide in the closet for two hours so she can get some work done. <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, let's talk about the Wolf of Wall Street. Okay. <laughs> My name is Jordan Belfort. The year I turned 26, I made $49 million, which really pissed me off because it was three shy of a million a week. We're making a name for ourselves. Nobody knows. The stock is going to go up, down, sideways, or in circles. You know what Fugazi is? Fugazi. It's a fake. Yeah, Fugazi, Fugazi. It's a wazi, it's a woozy, it's a fairy dust. Was all this legal? Absolutely not. We were making more money than we knew what to do with. We don't work for you, man. Yeah, my money take to your goose. Technically, you do work for me. What's wrong, Daddy? What's wrong, Oh, my God. FBI, any kind of booze you might want. No, the bureau forbids us from drinking. So follow me, I could about to go. I'm doing 500, I'm out of control. But there's nowhere to go, and there's no way to slow. If I knew what I knew in the past, I would have been like that on your. How does this actually work? There's a big money sign. They get launched at the time. They stick. Yeah. This is their gift, okay? They're built to be thrown like a lawn dart. One, two, three. Stop. Okay? Safety first. Safety Obviously. is, safety yeah. is first. Okay. We don't want to get a bad reputation.
Okay, that was a clip from The Wolf of Wall Street, Martin Scorsese's latest feature, uh, starring Leonardo DiCaprio as Jordan Belfort, a real-life uh, Wall Street, you know, bigwig, um, who started out at the very bottom uh, and worked his way, he got fired and he worked his way up, uh, he created his own company and uh, fleeced a bunch of people, made tons and tons and tons of money, um, got busted, you know. The rise and fall, but mostly the rise of, of this guy. Um, and the film is three hours long, like we said, uh, but it's 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 such a quick film. I mean, there's the, it, it, it never drags because the film is just constantly on the go. There have been comparisons made to maybe the last 20 minutes of uh, Goodfellas stretched out to three hours at length. This is the fifth film that Scorsese's done with DiCaprio. And let me ask you this, Sean, where, where in the DiCaprio Scorsese, you know, what, what, what's a five-sided thing? Uh, Pentagon. <laughs> yeah. What, 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 what corner of the, of the Pentagon does this uh, film reside for you? Uh, right now I, I actually have this as my favorite of the, uh, Scorsese DiCaprio films, but it's, it's close with The Departed, which I really like a lot. And you, I, what, we'll talk more about, about late Scorsese when we get to the, the person of the week segment, but, but, uh, but I, I really like this movie and I, and I like what he does with, with Leo. I like Leo a lot and I think he's, he's fantastic in this movie. Like I've, I've been a fan of his ever since Growing Pains, since he was like the the kid that lived in a dumpster that the youngest son rescued. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I think this might be my favorite of his performances. He gets he gets more grown up every year. I feel the same way. I th- I I think um, this is the best collaboration between the two. Um, and I agree with you also that Departed is 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 up there. Um, and I really like the others too. And like you said, we'll talk about those later. And yeah, DiCaprio, you know, he's constantly pushing himself. And, and I feel like this, this role, um, I mean, everybody that worked on this picture was, <laughs> must've been, you know, they must've needed to like take like a three month vacation after this thing, because they're all working like full throttle. And I'm not just talking like in front of the camera, but you know, all, I mean, this movie's just exhausting in a great way. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think it's, it's phenomenal, but it's just so high powered, so high octane, um, from the, from the word go. And, uh, DiCaprio, you know, carries the picture. He's got to sell you on this guy being able to, you know, be, charismatic enough to to get to where he's at you know um but also show you this you know lack of (laughs) i don't even know what i mean this is part of the controversy of the film you know that's kind of making the rounds right now um where it's talking about how the film doesn't really give any comeuppance really to the character of Jordan Belfort. It's kind of just showing all of the shenanigans he gets into, all the drugs he takes, all the you know women he sleeps with, um, all of the f bombs he drops and stuff. Um, right. It's the the question of whether or not the film glamorizes his uh, his immoral lifestyle and and whether Scorsese should be ashamed for not you know spelling out that Jordan Belfort is a bad guy. Yeah, and you know. I think this controversy is really stupid, <laughs> if I may uh, put my two cents in here. And we don't need to dwell on it too much because I feel like it's kind of exhausted at this point. But, you know, it, it reminds me of the, 
you know, there's an argument that's made sometimes towards atheists or agnostic people or, or people that don't subscribe to a religion. And, and, and sometimes the question is posed, well, how do you know what's right or wrong? How are you a moral person? And it's like, do you really need something to tell you? Like some, a lot of this is just innate. And I feel like watching this movie, you know, I was laughing with this movie a lot because it's really, really, really funny. Um, but I was also the whole time being like, this guy's a total jerk and he's a horrible person. Like, it's not... Yeah, know. well, the... the uh, one of the, the, great, the great scenes in the film is when uh, Leo is, is running this company and it's, it's absolutely out of control. There's just all of these wild parties. There's cocaine everywhere. There's, you know, prostitutes. It's, it's just... It's a, a a frat house that's making millions of dollars for these these terrible terrible men, and uh, one of the the big financial magazines, I think it's Forbes, comes in and does a cover story on it. And when it gets published, it's like a total hit job, just talking about what uh, what a terrible guy he is. And that's where he gets the name, the Wolf of Wall Street. And he's initially upset when he sees this article because he thinks, you know, everyone's, you know, nobody's going to want to to work for him now because he's painted in such a horrible light. And then he gets to work that day and there are hordes, dozens, dozens of recent uh, MBA graduates who are dying to work for this company because they read that article in the magazine and they want to work there because this is America and those people are out there. And, and those and those people are going to be out there, you know. If even if Scorsese in the last half hour of this thing, you know, did do some some way of you know giving you know Jordan Belfort his you know comeuppance and and you know bringing the hammer down, there will always be those people that that just think of the you know you know Scarface you know you know going crazy and you know doing tons of cocaine or whatever. Um, no 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 amount of moralizing is going to convince the idiots that this guy is an asshole, you know? Right. And, 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 uh, the, if, if the movie does have like a, a political point to make, it's, it's the fact that people like this don't get punished. One of the, the last lines in the film is, uh, uh, Jordan is finally going to jail for all of these terrible crimes that he's committed. He's, he's going to, to, he's sentenced to three years in jail and he's very dread, very much dreading the experience of his first day in jail. And then he says in the narration, uh, Oh, and then I realized I'm rich and I live in a place where everything is for sale. As we see images of this country club prison where guys are dressed in white and playing tennis and it's a total breeze his his jail time there is no real punishment for him and oh absolutely not yeah yeah and and then you know he he it, and then post that you know he comes out and he's you know he's been quote unquote shamed but he turns it uses it to his advantage and has these you know seminars where he's you know selling his tips on how to you know get ahead and, and you know use that yeah, and in in that final infomercial, it's the actual Jordan Belfort that introduces Leonardo DiCaprio. So, so not only does he get to to breeze through prison time and then continue to have a career off of his you know criminal capitalist uh, enterprises, he gets to star in the movie of his own life. Right, but well, at yeah. least appear in the movie of his own life. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> he's in, <laughs> not he's really in like the star thirty or. <laughs> probably like two frames of, uh, you know, 180 minutes. But, um, but all that being said is 
walking out of this thing, I, you know, I did not um, long for his life at any point. As you know, he he's constantly chasing, you know, the impossible. He he's he's never truly satisfied, um, and he's just yeah. It, I yeah. Well, I ne- you you and I are not Jordan Belfort's target audience. <laughs> It's like you're, well, you, just, you work in a library, and I am unemployed, stay-at-home well, dad. Like we are, we are not economically aspiring to greatness, like the people that he preys upon. Right, right, but no, but I'm talking about in the in the term in the context of the movie, like not Jordan Belfort himself, but like you know the controversy surrounding this is that you know like, and I don't think Mar- you know Martin Scorsese didn't make this movie for the people that are rubes that are going to buy into Jordan Belfort's you know, schemes or, or, or try and, you know, I, I think Martin Scorsese is more of, and this might just be me projecting, you never know, but I feel like he's on our side. here. Um, I I, I definitely think he is. I mean, I, I think he's coming at it from a different perspective. I think he's coming at it from his, uh, his personal experience as a, a, uh, a cocaine addict in, in the late 1970s. Oh yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, think he's 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 very much viewing the film as a, a film about addiction and about the the just the kind of rush you get from money and success and drugs and just how that ends up kind of you know messing you up. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's let's move away from the the controversy of the thing because we're clearly on the same page with it um, here. And let's talk about the movie, like as, as a movie, uh, this thing is a tour de force. I mean, this thing from the minute it starts, it is just going a hundred miles an hour. Um, literally. I mean, you see him in his Lamborghini, which changes colors, which I think was one of the coolest things in the movie. I love how so quickly in this movie, uh, early on in the movie, should I say, um, Scorsese shows you that, you know, Jordan Belfort as, as the narrator can't really be trusted because he, uh, you know, he, he changes the color of his car and, uh, and there's these little things that he does throughout the movie that I, at least I feel go to, you know, ex- kind of expand on that idea. There's the, um, the scene about two thirds of the way through the movie when, um, he's confronted by the FBI on his yacht, yeah. um, Kyle Chandler plays a kind of a, you know, hardworking FBI guy who's been assigned to kind of track um, Jordan Belfort and, and get into what, you know, his business dealings are and stuff. And um, that scene on the yacht is really interesting. And I don't know if you saw this when you, but the, the cuts in that scene are kind of disjointed. Um, like people's placement in the scene kind of, move to different spots not fluidly and um it's a very interesting point of the movie to do that in and i think it's totally intentional because that's when the cracks really start to appear when jordan thinks he's on top in this conversation that he's having with uh kyle chandler's character and uh, um he thinks that he can bribe him yeah there's a cut when when chandler's partner suddenly appears behind Leo, right. where, where Leo didn't realize that he was there and overhearing his attempt to bribe him. Yeah, and uh, and there are these little those things that Scorsese does that I, that just um, they're just exhilarating. I mean, <laughs> this is a really exhilarating movie, and I 
I mean, I walking out of it, I was just high. And this happens a lot when I see a Scorsese movie. Um, it happened with The Departed, too, uh, where you walk out of the theater and you're just on this, um, you're on a high, but it's like a cinematic high where you're just like, how does he do this? <laughs> you know? Um, and yeah. I want to give a shout Well, anyway, sorry. What? Yeah, I, his, he's, uh, he's always been uh, a really very flashy, flashy filmmaker. And a lot of times that can be a, a detriment. Like I, I, I tend to not like directors like that. And it's, uh, it's people who are, who try to imitate him that tend to really get on my nerves. Like, uh, like David O. Russell. Yeah. It, for example. You're absolutely, yeah, absolutely right. Um, but with, Scorsese is so idiosyncratic about it. Like it, it's, it's, it's a style that is aped a lot, but never actually replicated. Because it, it's a really difficult thing to do. And, um, you know, you've got to give a shout out to Thelma Schoonmaker for, uh, you know, she's been his editor since Raging Bull, right? Um, uh, and yeah. I think I think that's, um, and she helps him, you know, craft these things. And, you know, I think the original cut of this was an hour longer. And, uh, you know, <laughs> that must have been a difficult chore to whittle this down to um, a very, very, very meaty three hours. Yeah, like a, like a lot of Scorsese's movies, it's very kind of episodic. So I can see how you could cut it down. Like there's probably like an uh, another hour at least of like kind of little stories. Like the like the the Quaalude story is kind of the mm-hmm. self contained little narrative that you could cut out of the movie and it wouldn't really change it all that much. But it but it's awesome. So you want to have it in there. There's probably the more best. like that. Like like Goodfellas is structured the same way, and I think that is uh, uh, more. Uh, the movie is, is more like Goodfellas in that way than it is maybe thematically because I think I don't I don't know Goodfellas seems to be coming from a, a totally different place and a, and a different kind of look at at American culture mm-hmm. to me but but that kind of of episodic one thing after another uh, self-contained little stories structure well, is similar yeah well and, for uh, me Casino is kind of the same way as well mm-hmm. Yeah, the, definitely. For me, you know, I mentioned Raging Bull a second ago. To me, this, in a weird way, is Scorsese's sports movie um, because you get those great, great monologues from uh, DiCaprio when he's firing up his, you know, his office. Um, I, there are like two or three, I think, in this, um, like long ones where he he has a little stage at the end of their, you know, um, floor of the the office building or whatever, and he has a microphone and he just it's like Hoosiers, you know what I mean? Like he's like, he's like firing up his players to get in the game, and it's just absolutely astonishing. Yeah, they're really they're really essential uh, scenes because they they show you just how exactly Leo was able to to do all, Jordan Belfort was able to do all of this, and you know he every once in a while he starts to like explain the details of his scheme and he's like, yeah, that's not really that important. You know, he did a bunch of stuff and then we got a bunch of money. Um, and it's not, it's not the details of like an IPO scheme. That's really important. Like we, we understand that he was able to do this because he's such a good salesman and those speeches where he's motivating his, his, his troops, uh, where he is basically selling them on the idea that they're going to go out and then sell, you know, garbage to people who can't afford it. Uh, that it's, it's essential that we 
see how good of a salesman he is in those speeches and and we do and and leo's fantastic and that doesn't mean that that he's persuasive to us because we're not stupid and all <laughs> of those people are yes but but uh but yeah those those speeches those were great just, yeah just... i actually think uh it's it's the the giving of those speeches and the psyching people up and and the selling people on things that is is really the the drug that hooks uh, Jordan Belfort. Like it's not it's not the the women or the or the cocaine or the quaaludes. It's the the high that he gets from from tricking dumb people out of their money through salesmanship. That is the the drug that he gets addicted to. Oh, I think that's very clearly stated in the movie where he it's his last um kind of speech that he gives to to his to his group where he was going to step down um because of all the heat you know on him and stuff and 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 he gets up there and he starts he starts having you know he 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 he's very quiet which is very rare for him and he tells the story of when they were first starting out and how he helped one of the um brokers there you know get you know an advance on her first check or something like that to pay for childcare or something like that um but then you see him as he's on the stage doing his his spiel and he's like you know what wait a minute <laughs> this is what i you know this is what i'm born to do and then he decides i'm staying you know i, I, I screw him screw right. the feds and, and you know? as as the movie ends he's still doing that like he's given up the 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 dr- actual like illegal drugs but he's still selling stuff. He's doing these like motivational seminars. So he's still he's still out there spreading this this uh, this capitalism. Yeah, yeah. He... For his for his own narcotic benefit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I do want to talk briefly about some of the supporting um, performances here. Uh, notably, this is the first time that I've ever uh, actually um, really appreciated Jonah Hill. <laughs> um, I it took me a long time to come around to him. I, I I didn't like him in Superbad, which is a movie that I just didn't care for at all. And whenever he cropped up in something, I just I just didn't get him. You know, he's in uh, Django for a second, Django Unchained, in in the worst scene that Tarantino's ever written. So yeah, I don't he, think that helps him at all. He got the, but, uh, the Oscar nomination for Moneyball, and and he's he's okay in that. I I don't know that it's really a award worthy performance, but uh, I I agree. I think I think he is. Here he's fantastic. I think he's he's really wonderful. Is a revelation, and and I think that he's just. I don't think it was necessarily my, you know, take. I think he's just maturing as an actor. I think he's getting better and better and better. So um, I was see that. Um, I'd also like to give a shout out to uh, McConaughey, who only has uh, two scenes, and and they're at the very very beginning of this movie, but they're the ones that set. Jordan Belford off on his, you know, yeah, that trajectory, so that, to speak. That lunch scene with with McConaughey and, and DiCaprio sets sets the tone for the whole movie. Like it's it's an expositional speech as McConaughey kind of lays out the ethos of the the 1980s stockbroker and just how amoral it is and how it's not about you know we we all have like this uh, economics 101 understanding of how the stock market works like it's it's for rich people to give money to people to build their businesses so they can provide products to consumers and right. it's, it's not about any of that it's about taking money from your clients and putting it in your pocket yep that's all that matters um and he just does i mean it it it's it's 
it's such a wonderful performance because like I said, it's it's five minutes at the beginning of the movie, but it sticks with you, partially because it comes up at the end where he does this chest thumping, you know, primal uh, alpha male thing. Um, that the, the money the, chant. The money chant that DiCaprio um, does at the the end of the film. So it comes back around to that um, thematically. But also, I mean, that's just per, that performance. McConaughey just is so much fun in that role. <laughs> He's just so good. And the, I mean, the whole cast, Kyle Chandler's great. Um, Margot Robbie, who plays his, uh, Jordan Belfort's uh, second wife, is really good. Uh, Joanna Lumley from uh, AbFab yeah, is in was... here. And she's just great. Yeah, as, as a, a, a long, long time, long ago AbFab fan, it was great to see her. Yeah, I, I, I didn't recognize her at first, and I was like, hey, it's Joanna Lumley, awesome. Yeah, and uh, uh, Jean Dujardin. Mm-hmm. Is is French? Uh, I actually <laughs> I liked uh, uh, Kristen Milioti a lot, and uh, I actually watched this as a uh, as a uh, double feature. I watched this back to back with Inside Lewin Davis, which also has Kristen Milioti playing a. Uh, uh, in Lewin Davis, she plays uh, his uh, sister, who's like being a, a living like a normal housewife life. So in in both of these movies, she's the normal housewife that the hero rejects to follow their own kind of muse. So I thought that was yeah, that's, that was I, odd. I didn't I didn't place the two. Yeah, you're right. It is her. Yeah, I, I think she's really really good here. I, you know, my only complaint. I mean, it's not her movie. I wish there was more of her in this um, because her character is the uh, is the only one with some semblance of morals. <laughs> Well, I guess Kyle Chandler's character too, but yeah, that's that's what 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 Chandler is there for to be to be coach, right? Right. Yeah. Do you have anything else to say? Not really. I just this is why we don't we didn't put out a an end of the year list for 2013 at the end of 2013 because because movies like this hadn't opened yet in Seattle and we hadn't had a chance to see them so. That's why we didn't do that episode. That's why we did 1933 instead. Yes, it's true. Well, I think because I, I, yeah, I think when we do get around to making a 2013 list, this will probably be pretty high on both of ours. Oh yeah, I mean, I I am keeping a running 2013 list um, for my own purposes, and this is uh, after the Chinese cut of the Grand Master. This is number two, easy. But um, but that being said, I haven't seen any of the other um, late. December releases, um, uh, which I think we'll be talking about a little bit later. Yeah, uh, I think I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to get that we get to to a lot of them by by the time the uh, Oscars come out, and we can kind of do like a, a top five of the year by then and have it be you know somewhat legitimate, somewhat reasonable. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I agree. By which uh, I mean, not neither of us talks about gravity. That no con- no problem there. I think that's like number ten on my list of of the year so far. So I think we're we're doing okay. So I'll have to watch uh, some more then. Yeah. Oh, uh, uh, one other thing I did uh, want to mention is is that uh, this was this is kind of like the the trend story for the year in film in 2013 is is movies about the American dream and and uh, 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 the the corruptions of, of modern capitalism in the kind of post uh, uh, bailout world. And we talked about one of these movies a little bit earlier, which was uh, Spring Breakers. And I don't know that we talked about uh, Pain and Gain. We did not. But the, or The Bling Ring. Or The Bling Ring, which I haven't seen. I haven't seen it either. I haven't seen it either. Uh, 
these these films are all all similar in in theme. At least they they try to be to the Wolf of Wall Street. But I I really think that that Wolf is the only one that actually gets it right. Right, that has the the right uh, kind of perspective of satire and entertainment and and insight to be really entertaining and not too moralistic while still making a a valid political point. Whereas I thought uh, Pain and Gain was uh, just kind of too dumb, and and Spring Breakers <gasps> just kind of too Michael uh, Bay to uh, <laughs> a school marmish to to actually. Uh, get the point across. But I think Wolf of Wall Street just kind of walked the line better well, than any of them. Yeah, I mean, my money's on on Marty, you know. <laughs> I have you know, I haven't seen um Pain and Gain uh, or Bling Ring, you know. Uh, I did like Spring Breakers uh a lot more than you did, but it this is this is clearly uh the bigger achievement. <laughs> for sure. Uh with that, let's hear what might be my favorite cover of all time. Yeah, it, it's neck and neck with Devo's version of uh, Satisfaction. Um, oh, by the way, Devo appears in Wolf of Wall Street for a second. There you get a little uncontrollable urge, which I was very happy to hear. Um, this is the Flying Lizards with their cover of Money. Was the Flying Lizards putting the Beatles to shame with their cover of Money. Uh, we are going to turn our attentions now to a newer segment on the show. This is called What's Sean Watching? So, Sean, what you been watching? Uh, well, I've actually been watching like some German Expressionism stuff for a different podcast that I'm doing, but that's not what I want to talk about right now. I want to talk about uh, Inside Lewin Davis, which I really liked and you were kind of mixed on. I, I was quite mixed on it. Um, I, Lewin Davis going into, uh, you know, the Oscar race season was clearly the front runner for me. I, I had been, you know, frothing at the mouth for this thing. Um, and yeah, I, you know, it's, it's a good movie. Don't get me wrong. I, I think it's a, it's I think it's a solid movie. I'd like to see it again. Um, I'm a, I'm a huge Cohen partisan. Um, so I, I'm interested in watching it again, but I just could not connect with the material um, on any sort of deep level with me. And, and, and it seemed like the stuff that, 
is in the movie I'd seen before in Cohen stuff, and they'd done it better. Um, yeah, but like I, it's 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 got a lot in common with with O Brother Artho, obviously, and uh, you know both being about kind of musical scenes thirty years apart, and uh, both having references to the Odyssey. Yep. And uh, the the way I've been thinking about Inside Llewyn Davis is it's it's Ulysses to a brother where that was the Odyssey, if that makes sense. It's uh, yeah. It's like a a a a, a more self conscious going through the motions in a in a more modernist and and kind of more uh, depressing way. <laughs> Well, it's it, it's interesting that you compare those two because um, this might be telling. Uh, you know, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou is in my bottom third of of Cohen films. Uh, so, it, both of those movies just failed to. And I haven't actually seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou since it came out in theaters back in two thousand or whatever year that was. Um, so I would like to revisit that one too. But it's another one that just I walked out of the theater being like, well. You win some, you lose. I mean, I just, you know, and I, I feel bad talking about it in terms of my kind of general malaise with the film because, like I said, it's good, and there's there's a lot going for it. You know, I think Oscar Isaac is really great. Um, John Goodman is is fantastic in his um, brief supporting role, and um, yeah, but it it just it just kind of sat there on the screen for me. I didn't really, I didn't have a, a way in with it. Um, like I have with so many of their other films. Um, yeah, it's, it's, he's one of their, their most unlikable protagonists. And not that, that that's like the reason why you didn't like the movie. Cause I think your, your favorite or one of your favorite is the one with their least likable protagonist. And that's the man who wasn't there. That's my favorite movie of theirs <laughs> by a long shot. I love that movie. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know what you know what it is about that. For me, that that movie and a movie like Barton Fink, and I'm not and I'm not saying that the Coen should do this kind of movie all the time because obviously that would get boring too. But um, there are those like extra elements that are thrown into movies like those two, like at the uh, the final third of uh, Man Who Wasn't There when the flying saucer shows up and and. It, and it's a left turn, but it feels right. You know what I mean? Um, and Barton well, Fink. I think, with, I think we get that at the end of of Lewin Davis with the uh, the weird kind of time warp that he gets stuck in. Yeah. Which, yeah, I can which see is, that. Which is really but... kind of perplexing, and it doesn't really fit the the tone of what's been established so far. But then, it totally makes sense. It does make sense. Um, I think the reason I didn't respond to that part as 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 well as I probably should have is because I really, really, really did not like uh, the appearance of Bob Dylan uh, at the end of the movie. I I thought it was it was a slap on the forehead for me. It was like, oh, did you? Oh, did you really have to do that? Um, I think. I think. Uh, I think. He, I think he did. I think. I, I think it was. Uh, it was really appropriate because. He's uh, Lewin is is the guy that that everything goes wrong for him. No matter what he tries to do, it it just doesn't work out, and and it's just kind of the the peak of his story is he's performing on the night that Bob Dylan gets discovered, and he's the opening act. And instead of getting discovered along with Dylan, he gets his ass kicked in the alley. Yeah. 
But for me, I think if they did a little more subtly, like if they just showed, because as soon as the guy that plays Dylan goes up on stage, I mean, maybe some people in the audience wouldn't have known, but like you see him and you're like, oh, that's supposed to be Dylan. Maybe if they just did that and then didn't have the Dylan music playing over him getting his ass kicked in the alley, I would have liked it more, but it was a little too on the nose for me um, because Dylan's presence um, as somebody that, you know, and uh, you, I'm sure, are, are, are the same way, knows a lot about that kind of era, um, being both, both of us being huge Dylan fans. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I knew Dylan was going to appear the moment uh, Carrie Mulligan said that the, the Times was going to be at the Gaslight that night. Right, exactly. And so for me, I think another part of this, the problem with this movie was that um, I might be too attached to the the location, the specific specificity of the whole thing, um, because like, you know, he goes to go see this guy Grossman, Ben Grossman, or something. But you know, in my head, the whole time I'm thinking is Albert Grossman, you know, Bob Dylan's manager, um, right. and you know, and then and and trying to like figure out like who each person kind of you know right. There's is, like the the kind of Peter Peter Paul and Mary doppelgangers, yeah. and and Lewin is is supposedly kind of loosely based on on Dave Van Ronk and yeah and you know that's the the Coens get into trouble with that a lot like it, it gives people who don't like the Coen brothers lots of easy outs to complain about them like uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum's review of Barton Fink is is basically about how the the Coens don't really understand William Faulkner because John Mahoney's character is supposedly based on William Faulkner and they're just being mean to him and William Faulkner is much better than the Coen brothers. See, which is, what... is really, is it's a, it's a really cheap way of scoring points in a negative review and it's not really relevant to the no, movie. It's, it's not, you're right. And, and, and in a movie like Barton Fink, that doesn't bother me. Um, but here, and, and it's not that they, they got, you know, Peter Paul and Mary wrong or something, you know, watching this, right. that's not my problem with this movie. It's just, um, yeah, it just it was a little too lifeless for me, or or, or too, you know, the Coens are often, you know, it's, it's often said that they're at, at a distance or they're cold or whatever, and I never really feel that way with their movies, except I kind of do here. Um, this this one is is very similar to, uh, for me in in terms of coldness to uh, a serious man. Oh, I love a serious man. And I think nice. <laughs> I think they're they're both coming from the, a similar point of view, and I think. Uh, uh, Michael Stilbarg's character in Serious Man is very similar to to Lewin Davis in in their just kind of haplessness and 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 uh, powerlessness in the face of of the universe. Yeah, but I and, think that and, then, th- and you know with with that parallel, I see like the tornado at the end of a Serious Man being you know Bob Dylan because he comes in like a tornado and basically destroys this entire world that that Lewin has been living in. Yeah, but a Serious Man one. Um, I like Michael Stuhlbarg's character more. Like I can, I can, uh, um, and it's not that I didn't like Lewin Davis as a character or Oscar Isaac's performance. Like I said, he's really great. Um, but I sympathized more with uh, Michael Stuhlbarg's character in that movie. Um, I think that the tornado was was so much more out of left field and an awesome. Like, like I mean, an awesome in in terms of like this force that's coming, you know, that's coming. Um, and I, yeah, that movie to me is, is so rich and deep and there, there's so many things to chew on with that movie. Um, that I, I, if they're comparable, uh, one is clearly the better. of the two. And, you know, I, like I said at the beginning of this discussion, I, 
I feel bad knocking Inside Lewin Davis because I liked it, but I just didn't love it. Like I do for, you know, four-fifths of the Coen Brothers movies that come out. I, I just kind of, they're, they're immediate, you know, top one ones or twos for the year for me and this one just you know it just didn't hit that bar for me yeah uh what one last thing i'll say about bob dylan is uh, bob dylan's appearance is that uh i love the that the song that they picked for him is is kind of a variation on the song that that lewin is most known for throughout the film uh right lewin sings a song. Uh, uh, dink song which the the refrain is is fairly well and then the uh and it goes on from there but uh the the song that Dylan first first sings on stage also uses uh, farewell or fairly well in in the chorus, so it's it's kind of a it's kind of a similar song, but Dylan's is much different and more unique and more Bob Dylan, and it's it's that kind of extra element that Dylan added to the folk scene of writing his own songs and and imprinting this you know incredible personality and and. Uh, 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 writing ability that he had into it instead of just recycling old songs that kind of blew the Lewin Davises away. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, yeah, it's clear, like, you know, there's, there's this, the pivotal scene where he or Lewin is performing um, for F. Murray Abraham and he, and Oscar Isaac gives it his all. I mean, that scene is probably my favorite at least performance, musical performance in the movie um, when he's auditioning. And, um, but at the same time, like Oscar Isaac has a wonderful voice. He does a, a, a stellar version of that song, but Bob Dylan has just this amazing voice that doesn't sound like anybody else, you know, and he, he tackles these folk kind of um, idioms from like a completely unique perspective. And that's why when F. Murray Abraham says, I don't see you any money in this, it's because Lewin Davis is kind of like every other dude, you know, like every other competent dude, you know, that yeah. with a guitar, you know, I know 10,000 guys like Lewin Davis that can play guitar and, um, you know, sing, you know, competently, but you know, you don't have that spark. And so I, you know, I understand that. Yeah. I, I, am, I, think... I am somewhat annoyed that they changed the name of, of Dink's song. And I understand why they did it. Uh -huh. they, they refer to it as fairly well throughout the movie because I think, you know, the, the people in the audience that didn't know the song before will be like, Dink? That's right. a dumb name for a song. <laughs> What's a dink? Uh, um, I but, I, but, I, but I love that song. And I love, uh, I love Dylan's version of that song. I love uh, Jeff Buckley has a great version on, on his live album that uh, any fans of Inside Lewin Davis should definitely check out. Yes. Why, yeah, I mean the music's the music's solid. I I feel like the the Coens maybe maybe like I don't know. It, I feel like they're too attached to this music, this era. Like it felt like kind of like a boomer movie for me. Um, which and don't get me wrong, I love that music too. But it was like, yeah, yeah. I I wonder if you judge this and and No Brother more harshly because uh, because you are a a musician and you're more in that world than they are. That's possible. I mean, it's it, it's possible. I I don't know. I mean, like I said, I need to revisit both of these films because um, while they're not my favorites, um, they're Coen Brothers movies, and so I you know 
I'll probably see them another 10 times before I die <laughs> instead of like another hundred times like I would the big Lebowski, you know, so. All right, we should we should really move on because this is not the Inside Lewin Davis show. This is just I know, I think we just watching. <laughs> I think we spent more time on that than the Wolf of Wall Street. Quite possible. Uh, uh, we should get to the news. Yes, and, there's plenty uh, of news. Yeah, the, uh, the sad news this week is that Run Run Shaw died. He was... Uh, 106th. 106 or 107, depending on how you count. He was born in, in 1907. He was 69 years old the year I was born. Yeah, that's and crazy. And I, I go through every day of my life feeling old. And <laughs> he was already 69 when I was born. So He was 82 when I was born. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, it really puts things in perspective. Run Run Shaw, of course, was the the youngest of the Shaw brothers and uh, kind of the one in charge of the the Shaw brothers studio in Hong Kong during their heyday in the late 60s through the the mid 80s when they kind of put the the Kung Fu film on the map, employing, you know, many of the the greatest uh, directors and stars of of that genre. And at the same time he was running the Shaw Brothers studio, he also started uh, TVB, which was the a big television station in Hong Kong that gave a start to uh, you know, Chow Yun-Fat, Tony Leung, Stephen Chow, uh, uh, Johnny Toe, Wong Kar-Wai. A lot of the, the great talents that came out of the, the Hong Kong New Wave started at uh, Shaw's uh, TV station. So I mean, just it, it's kind of it's kind of impossible to overstate uh, his profound influence on you know films and and you know I mean it's 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 he was one of the biggest you know yeah I mean my my uh, in in reading some of the uh, the obits that that came out uh, af- after he died the 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 favorite fact that I that I learned was that. Uh, the Shahs had a movie studio in Shanghai before World War II, and uh, after 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 the war, they moved to they fled to Hong Kong, or maybe during the war they fled to Hong Kong. And the way that they got their their new studio established there was that they had buried three million dollars worth of gold from I know. to hide it from the Japanese. And when the Japanese left, they dug it up, and and that was their startup capital. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that yeah. Uh, I'd love to see a movie of that, you know. Yeah, that's let's get a, a Monuments Men about the uh, <laughs> yeah, about, about the, the Shaw, Shaw brothers, brothers burying gold in their backyard. Uh, um, yeah, it, it's it's you know a sad thing, um, but you know a ripe old age, one hundred and six. That's pretty one hundred and seven. Whatever you want to give it, uh, it's pretty good. Yeah, uh, I I will be happy to live uh, half that long. Yeah, <laughs> I hey, if I make it through next Tuesday, I'm good. Uh, uh, the I, next piece of news that we're going to discuss um, is Manola Dargis from the New York Times wrote a piece. Uh, maybe you can set this one up for us here, Sean. Yeah, she's basically complaining that there are, <laughs> that there are too many movies that get released into theaters, which makes it hard for people to figure out what are the good movies to see, and. It's kind of a, a silly complaint in in that uh, some of the numbers she cites are are a byproduct of of the Times itself editorial policy to do a review of every movie that plays theatrically in New York, 
which means that that people will book a, a single screen in New York and pay the theater to show their movie just so they can get a review in the Times. And the stat she cited was that there were 900 uh, first-run movies that played in New York in, in 2013, which is a ridiculous number, but maybe half of that are these kind of, uh, uh, you know, one-week-only kind of rental-type type screenings. So, you know, maybe it's not as big a problem as she thinks it is. Right. And then on, on the flip side is, is I don't really know who, you know, why, why should we as like an audience care that there are too many movies for critics to review? <laughs> well, but I, I know what you're saying, but I, I do agree with her in, in some fashion where, um, like take a movie like Drug War, for example. Like Drug War, I feel like in the U.S. should have been given more of a chance in theaters because there, there's, there's been. I've, I mean, at least from the circles I run in, you know, it seems like there's kind of been a groundswell for Drug War um, recently since it's shown up on Netflix and stuff. Yeah. But Drug War is a really good movie to see in the theater, and if it if it could have stayed longer than a week before being bumped for like I don't know COG or you know <laughs> some like faceless indie movie that had to come and fill that screen, I think it would it would have helped Johnny Toe's exposure. Would have helped that movie's exposure. I think it would have um, brought a lot of people out. You know, um, and yeah, I, you and know, I, I think uh, I think a lot of that is is not. I mean, I, I don't I don't blame the indie filmmakers. I blame the distributors for oh, I agree. for for privileging you know shitty little American movies over really good foreign movies, and and part of that is that the shitty little American movies do better business than the foreign movies because audiences aren't trained to watch foreign films, and American audiences have never really been good for foreign language films. There was a time that that everyone kind of remembers Rosalie, where people would go see Ingmar Bergman and Jean-Luc Godard and, and Michelangelo Antonioni films, and really they weren't going to see it for the art; they were going because there was boobs in them sometimes. <laughs> and now hey. that there's lots of boobs in American films, American audiences don't need to go see foreign language films anymore, so they don't because well, it's subtitled. That's dumb. Why would I want to read a movie? Yeah, well, you know, another argument that Manola Dargis brings up that I actually, I agree with too, to a degree is um, the window shrinking between movies being released in theaters and then showing up, you know, digitally or um, on DVD, you know, because like, it, and that's another studio problem is, is a lot of people will avoid seeing stuff because they know it's going to be on DVD in like five weeks or whatever. And I'm a huge fan, as you are, of, of actually making the trek to a movie theater, experiencing the movie in, in its natural environment. Um, and Yeah, I but think, I, I but think I, we're really like the last generation that actually values that, though. Because the, the younger cinephiles I, I talk to on the internet seem just as, as happy to sit in their little apartments and watch the movie that they've illegally downloaded on their laptop. Well, yeah. Well, and, you know, I think that's a bad thing. <laughs> I mean, you know, call me old-fashioned or call me, you know, a curmudgeon or whatever, but, like, I can't think of a, a screening that I've had at home 
that has equaled seeing the Surs when we read the Metro or, you know, when I saw um, the Gold Rush earlier this year at SIF um, or, you know, when I was a kid and I went and saw, you know, Back to the Future or something in the movie theater. Um, sure. You know, nothing has, you know, no movie experience at my house has ever come close to something like that. And um, Yeah, but the, the movie theaters aren't, aren't catering to, to cinephiles. Oh yeah, I know why. That's not that's not where the money is. Like you, you're just not going to make money showing drug war in a theater when you could show, you know, Iron Man three, on on eight screens. Well, speaking of this, this will wrap up our conversation. Uh, the one thing I really took away from Manila Dargis's uh, little piece was she really hates Iron Man three. Yeah, <laughs> that, that was that was odd. <laughs> She kept using that as her example of like bad Hollywood filmmaking. <laughs> it was like, I mean, I haven't seen it, so I can't really judge. But uh, but yeah. it was really <laughs> well. My my suggestion for the the New York Times editorial board is to stop reviewing all nine hundred movies that play in New York in a year and just review the ones that actually could use a review. And those are the small movies, the foreign movies, and not the Iron Man threes because Iron Man three doesn't care what the New York Times says about it. And nobody's going to go to see it based on what Manola Dargis or A.O. Scott has to say about it. <laughs> and she burned me on The Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> Let me just tell you right now. Damn you, Manola. Damn you! Uh, our last piece of news is uh, actually ties in with our person of the week here. Um, Martin Scorsese wrote, a, wrote an open letter to his daughter about the state of cinema. Um, and in the last year or so, and I think we talked about this on the show at some point, there have been these these people like Steven Soderbergh and George Lucas have come out and talked about how cinema is dying um, in whatever definition of the term they'd like to use. Um, on the flip side, Scorsese's letter is, uh, is a very optimistic one, and he talks about uh, how, yes, there are these you know big budget, you know, tentpole movies that are out there. But there are these voices that are being, you know, heard and praised that are able to make really interesting films. And he lists, you know, the Coens and Paul Thomas Anderson and some guy named Wes Anderson. I haven't seen any of his movies, but, um, you know, people like that. So, um, yeah, that was he, a nice... he, pre- he presents the, the flip side of the, the digital is ruining everything argument, which is that digital technology makes things so much cheaper and it's so much easier to make a movie now than when he was just starting out that, you know, it, it enables, you know, 600, uh, uh, terrible American filmmakers to release movies that they've made in New York, but at least, you know, they were able to do it. At least they weren't priced out of it. Right. And, and, you know, one or two out of that 600 um, could, you know, blossom and turn into a real, you know, auteur, a real voice for cinema. Um, and that's, that's a good thing. Absolutely. You know. <laughs> so that, you know, that was a nice thing to read. It yeah, was cool. I, cause I, it, I, I, I have trouble seeing it as a negative that more people are able to make movies and get them seen. That just, it seems to me like the more movies the better. Well, I think, and this ties in with the Manila Dargis thing, I think um, my criticism of these things is, is it's, it's very much like the, uh, 
the old guard in terms of like music publishing and and record labels and stuff over the last decade where they're they're freaking out because there's not this like you know music fandom has has splintered off into like 10,000 different little subsets and and there are very few artists that kind of you know um are you know appealing across the board and that's that's what's happening with movies too it there you know you've got your few tentpole movies which are like your lady gagas and stuff um but then everybody else is going off and, and getting into their own weird little things and and those movies are just you know for smaller and smaller audiences but yeah, it's well, it, speaking to some people. It makes the job of a critic much harder because you actually have to advocate for things instead of just sitting back and, and waiting for like the major releases and passing judgment on them and knowing that everyone only has you know the same eight movies that they can go and see and so the, your opinion actually matters to them. But when there's like 200 movies that you can see, you actually have to you know, use some discernment and, and you have to be persuasive in trying to get your audience to go and see them. Like a, a movie like uh, like Leviathan or something is is something that that just wouldn't technically be possible without digital cameras, but it also wouldn't be uh, the success that it is, and it's a very modest success even by you know documentary standards. It wouldn't be that without the support of of film critics on the internet and and saying you know advocating it and, and pushing for it and and trying to get people to watch it, and so I I think that's fantastic. Yeah, and it it makes it makes the job harder at a time when uh, it's uh, not a, a economically viable profession for hardly anybody. But <laughs> except for me, I'm getting paid for this podcast. Right, except like for I you. Mentioned at the beginning, <laughs> except for you and and, and Manola Dargas. That's right. Um, well, I mean, that's part of the reason that you know, and I I I don't call myself a critic. I you know, um, or I don't put myself in in the same breath as someone like Manila Dargis or something. But like that's part part of the reason that this year I stepped back from the whole 2013 like year end like spectacular thing where I don't feel like every year, you know, I feel like a kind of a fraud when I, you know, do make my top ten of the year because I know there are so many movies worthy of my attention that I haven't gotten to. You know? And it feels kind of cheap for me to to say you know, the Grandmaster is the best movie of 2013 when in fact I've only seen like 15 movies from 2013, you know? Um, yeah, well, you know, one of my, my axioms as a, uh, a cinephile is that, is that the more movies you watch, the more movies you realize you haven't seen and that you need to watch. So it's, it's a never-ending cycle. You can never see enough movies to make a definitive, you know, top 10 list of any year. That, right, you know, from 1928, there's no way for you to see all of the possible movies of 1928 that could be in your top 2010 list, even if they still existed, which you know half of them don't. Right. No, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so let's, let's talk let's, about Marty's Christmas. Yeah, let's <laughs> let's talk about uh, um, about Marty, uh, who is somebody for whom I have seen almost all of his movies, but not hey! all of them. Which one have you not seen? Uh, I haven't seen Boxcar Bertha. Mm. I think that, might that be, the... I think that might be the only feature I haven't seen. Uh, there's the uh, the My Voyage to Italy I haven't seen, and some of his documentaries I haven't seen, like the Rolling Stones one. I think I, I didn't see. You don't need to see it. And uh, his Voyage to Italy thing, it's it's okay. You know, it's it's a nice compilation of awesome movie scenes, but it's not. 
anything revelatory, really. There's not a lot of, like, from my memory, it's been a while since I've seen it, but it's not um, full of, like, critical insight or anything. It's just, like, this movie's awesome, check it out. Which is cool, because, I mean, you know, I think I probably ended up checking out a few movies based on that, seeing clips of them in that movie, you know. Um, And Shine a Light, yeah, it's, you know... It's more of a, a Stones movie than a Scorsese movie. You know what I mean? Right. If you're a Stones fan, check it out. Jack White's in it. That's pretty cool. But um, yeah, you know. Yeah. So I, I think of, of Martin Scorsese as as kind of a, a gateway director. Like he he's somebody that you you watch when you, when you're young. Maybe you're in high school. You watch Taxi Driver or Goodfellas, uh, and then as you you get kind of more into film, you you he's one of like the first directors that you identify as like, this is Martin Scorsese. And maybe it's, it's because he's like so present in, in interviews and he's such a recognizable figure with like those giant eyebrows. And he talks really fast about how much he loves movies and, and he's such an energetic and, and charismatic presence. But, uh, he's one of like the, the first directors that people get into when they're first getting into movies, kind of like an Alfred Hitchcock or an Akira Kurosawa. And, I think uh, those guys, as as you develop as a cinephile, I think you, you there's a tendency to grow out of them and and move on to more kind of esoteric corners of of the film world. Like you you move past Kurosawa to Ozu, and then maybe past Ozu to Naruse or or Shimizu or or whatever. But with Scorsese, is an interesting case because he's still making movies, whereas a lot of those other guys, you know, your Hitchcock, your Wells, are are not active anymore. What what do you what do you think about Marty? Did he play that role for you? No, not really. Um, definitely not like a Kurosawa or a Hitchcock for me. I've always liked and really respected Marty um, and and his work. I've you know I really 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 like most of his movies, um, but I've never really loved them across the board. Um, I think I think he's made more than one masterpiece in his time and uh judging by the wolf of wall street he's not done yet um you know he's i I think he's with the wolf of wall street and i you know i really really liked hugo too um and i i i think marty is is just as good now as he has been um yeah i'm i'm i am totally on board with with late scorsese yeah I, i think he kind of uh kind of meandered for a while, he, it seemed, you know, the, the like the the dominant narrative was that he was trying to win the Oscar, so he would do like these big bloated movies like Gangs of New York or The Aviator, which I think is really unfair to those movies because they're a lot more interesting than that. Absolutely, I think that's a stupid narrative. Which yeah. I, I I know what you mean. I mean that was totally how people wrote it, but like especially something like The Aviator. Um, it's a Martin Scorsese picture. I mean, you watch that thing. It's not, no one else could have made the aviator the way that Marty, it's not some like, um, you know, uh, Rob Marshall movie or something like that. You know what Uh, I mean? But, uh, but after that, uh, since the departed, I think he's, he's really just kind of, uh, just kind of settled down and is just making really awesome Martin Scorsese movies. And uh, he, he did The Departed, he did Hugo, Shutter Island, and, and now The Wolf of Wall Street. And they're all in my, my top 13 of his movies. And I, I think they're fantastic. And uh, I, I am a fan of, of great directors' late periods. I think they, they tend to do some of their, their most interesting work after people have stopped paying attention to them. 
Uh, Kurosawa was that way. John Ford, Howard Hawks, Alfred Hitchcock, and and I think I think Scorsese's late period is is right up there with with those greats. Oh, well, and the great thing about it is that, as as noted by this controversy of the Wolf of Wall Street, um, you know, Martin Scorsese is is the most uh, controversial filmmaker that's making movies right now, and the dude's like in his seventies. Like, I mean. <laughs> that's so awesome that he's still pushing himself and and you know i don't think he's intentionally going out of his way to piss people off but the fact that he's making movies that aren't toothless i think is is really awesome and i think he still has a lot to say um and yeah i agree with you i i, I think his later stuff is 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 so good i mean i love his early stuff too mean streets is um fantastic um i really li- i know you're not as big a fan of raging bull um but i I I do really love that movie. Um, do, you, do you have a, an underrated Scorsese pick? A movie that that gets maligned that you would like to champion? I, I don't know if underrated is the right word. I I think people should talk about After Hours more than they do. Um, although After Hours, I feel like has at least in the last you know it, it's it's built a, a, a cult following or a fan a following, but. Um, that would probably be my pick. I really, really like After Hours. Yeah, that, that's a great one. That's another one that I thought in in of in in connection with Wolf of Wall Street. It's kind of an episodic structure of just kind of crazy shit that this guy does. Right, right. Yeah, and it's uh, really funny. Yeah, my my pick actually would be uh, The Age of Innocence. Which came out at a time of all of like these Merchant Ivory, Helena Bottom Carter costume drama things, and it just kind of got lumped into that. But it's it's so much a Martin Scorsese movie, and so not a a Merchant Ivory movie. It's not just uh, you know fantastic costumes and and sets and Edith Wharton novel. It's it's a, a very you know complex and, and multi layered novel in in its approach to its characters and. Also, just just visually, the way that he displays those costumes and those sets, there are these long tracking shots with dissolves of like these these you know luscious tables that have been set out that are as as pornographic as anything in The Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, I I hate to say it, I I haven't seen The Age of Innocence. It's it's on my uh, watch list on Amazon Instant where it's been sitting for a while and. I, I know I need to see it. Scott Tobias, actually, from The Dissolve, is also uh, a huge proponent of that film. And, uh, yeah, I need to check that one out. Yeah, the the first time I saw it, uh, shortly after it came out, so I, I must have been like 18, uh, I did not care for it, mostly because uh, uh, I did not like Daniel Day-Lewis's character. I thought he acted stupidly. Uh-huh. And then the, I saw it again maybe, maybe five years after that, and... Uh, it, I realized something that should have been really obvious on first viewing, but I was 18, so give me a break, uh, which is that, that the narrator uh, is totally making fun of Daniel Day-Lewis the entire time. <laughs> and he's supposedly the hero of the story, and, and the, 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 the narrator, which is like Edith Wharton's voice, as you know, it's based on, on her novel, is right. just skewering him left and right for, for his, his pretensions and his you know, kind of idiotic rectitude. And yeah, it, it, it gives a whole different kind of perspective on what happens in the film and makes it much more interesting. Cool. Yeah, yeah, I need to check that. It's great. Have you seen? It's good. And seen... it's peak Winona Ryder. Oh, I love me some Winona Ryder. Yeah. I uh, I watched recently uh, Linklater's uh, 
uh, a scanner darkly. Oh yeah. And she's in that. And, uh, I mean, she's, you know, rotoscoped, but, uh, <laughs> but I was like, man, I really love me some Winona Ryder action. So I, I think, I think, uh, we lost, we lost something, something big 15 years ago when Winona Ryder went out of our lives. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. Uh, well, uh, yeah, Martin Scorsese, he's awesome. Yeah. You should, <laughs> you should watch some, some Scorsese movies if you haven't seen any. Yes. <laughs> So with that, let's uh, let's move on to our uh, cinema essential for this week. It is uh, money movies, movies about money. What what? Uh... Uh, my pick, Sean, is uh, a film that I actually haven't seen probably in about fifteen years, which is uh, roughly when it came out. Um, it's a it's a film by Sam Raimi called A Simple Plan. Uh, it stars Bill Paxton, uh, Billy Bob Thornton, and Bridget Fonda, and uh, it's a movie about these kind of you know blue collar people that find uh, a bag full of money in a plane that crashed uh, out in the middle of nowhere um, and it, the movie is basically about how the money completely tears these people apart um, and it's got some really great performances I mean I haven't I, I want to see it again I'm a huge Raimi fan um, and I'm a fan of of all those leads actually particularly Billy Bob Thornton uh, and Bridget Fonda um, but I remember it being a really kind of taut um, interesting little movie that has these flashes of Sam Raimi's kind of shock uh, factors to it. And uh, it's a lot of fun. So that's my pick. Yeah, I remember liking that movie at the time. And it's one that I that I suspect if I go back and rewatch it, I won't like it as much. And that's I'm, not, why I'm I, not exactly sure why, but I'm, I'm kind of hesitant to revisit it. That's why I mentioned that. You know, just just I'm covering my tracks here. I'm like, I really liked this movie when I was 18. Uh, you know, but I, I'm a, I'm a Sam Raimi fan. Uh, Spider-Man Three accepted. Uh, you know, I even I even liked Oz the Great and Powerful. So sue me. <laughs> what is your pick, Sean, for the uh, your Cinema Central money movie? Uh, City Lights. Oh. Uh, Charlie Chaplin's movie, and and pretty much every Charlie Chaplin movie could be said to be about money. Like the the essential char- one of the essential characteristics of of the Little Tramp is that he is poor. But I think uh, City Lights and and Modern Times to to some extent kind of uh, best expresses the the value that money can have in society and how difficult it is for somebody like the Tramp to get it. Mm-hmm. And it's a uh, the it's it's basically an, an episodic story about the the tramp trying to raise money to pay for an operation to save the uh, the girl he's sweet on, and he gets goes through these various schemes and and eventually he gets the money, and running running throughout it is this relationship he has with a a, a very rich drunk guy who loves him when he's drunk and has no memory of him at all when he's sober. And it's just kind of a, a neat little encapsulation of the capriciousness of the rich and their debauchery, which is, you know, uh, uh, an element running through Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, while the, uh, the various things that money can do and what it means to different people on the, uh, the social ladder is uh, a theme of the next movie we're going to talk about, which is Marcel Lerbier's A Large Aunt. So let's... I mean, we don't we don't really need to talk about City Lights. So you, you, we talk about Chaplin all the time on the show. We did a whole show about him, didn't we? 
Yeah. Well, we, talk, yeah. we talked about we, Mr. Voodoo earlier. So, yeah. I mean, I, what more can you say about Charlie Chaplin? Let's let's just move on to to Large Aunt. And we're not going to listen to a clip because it's silent. Instead, we're going to listen to Spinal Tap. <laughs> yes. So our, our second film this week is uh, from 1928. It's uh, a French silent film from director Marcel Lerbier. It's called L'Argent, or Money. And it is about a, a financier named uh, Saccard who is, uh, as the film opens, he's suffered a big loss and he needs to make a comeback to kind of rebuild the holdings of his bank. So he's at a restaurant and catches uh, the eye of a, a pretty young lady who, whose husband has a scheme to develop oil resources in South America. So Sicard funds the scheme, raises his stock uh, very high through some various uh, nefarious and, and fraudulent activities. And then, and then eventually he, he is a little too forward with the wife and gets his comeuppance as she... Uh, basically turns him in for fraud at the behest of a rival financier who is much, much cooler than him. <laughs> he's got dogs. Yeah, he's got little dogs. <laughs> so yeah, yes. it's it's based on a novel by by Emil Zola and it's it's very specific in its plot and it's very it's very, very plotty. There's a whole lot that happens and there's a lot of characters in the film and there's a lot of twists and it's not entirely clear where everything is going. It's more of kind of like a day-to-day kind of journalistic account of what's going on, which is more in Zola's style. But Lerbier tells it in this, in this, you know, very free and wild late silent film style. He was part of a, a movement of, of French directors who were uh, called like uh, impressionists uh, 
mostly in contrast with with German directors of of the 1920s who were expressionists. And I don't know that either group would ever actually call themselves that or that either of them knew what they meant or how they were different from each other. (laughs) But that's basically how they're grouped. And, and, you know, I haven't seen a lot of, of French films from this period, but on the evidence of this one, it basically involves just a willingness to do any crazy shit with a camera that you can think of. <laughs> it's awesome. I, I yeah, the, I I was not expecting that. I didn't know anything really about this movie going into it. Um, and I actually, I so I watched this on YouTube uh, on my TV, uh, which is the, one of the only ways really to watch this thing. And uh, prior to watch to watching it for the show. Um, I just wanted to make sure that it had subtitles so I'd be able to, you know, know what the hell was going on. And so I just tested it, and it just cut to one second in the movie, maybe like 14 minutes in. Um, and it was this... It's one of the first times that they go into um, the rival tycoon's Gunderman's house, and he... and. Um, someone is led into, like, this antechamber or whatever that's got this wall... This this map of the world ringing it, and there's this like checkerboard floor, and it's shot from this like low angle from far away. And I just clicked on that just to test the movie, and I was like, "What the hell is this movie? This is awesome!" Like, I mean, I was like super hyped just on that one shot, you know? Yeah, um, it, and I was it's glad a, it's a low angle with like almost like a fisheye lens, so right. the wall is curved, and it's even more curved because of of the lens, and it's it's really really freaky. It's freaky. It's terrifying. It's and and exhilarating. It's awesome, and so um, that that sold me on on you know jumping into this thing, and I was happy to see that um, it continues doing that for the the three hours. I mean, they attach a camera to a door, like so you see someone's hand like closing a door, and like the camera like slams with the door, um, and there's there are a couple shots. There's um, there's a lot of like double and, and triple, and I think there's even like a quadruple exposure shot where just images superimposed on each other, and there's like weird like match dissolves. Like at one point, like a the propeller of an airplane starts, and it it, oh. it dissolves to a shot of an overhead shot of the trading floor, which is the circle that kind of matches the the propeller, and the camera is spinning in the overhead shot like the propeller is. Yeah, that I, that was. I'm glad you brought that up. That that might be my favorite. Uh, shot in the movie when they because it's so abstract when it cuts to the the um trading floor that it takes you like a full minute to realize like what's what is this is this like a hubcap like what's going on here what, is this like the propeller um and then it pulls out and you're like oh my god that's awesome um yeah this, and, this is my second time uh watching the film and mm-hmm. uh you know, I loved all of the all of like the the crazy images the first time. I don't think I understood the plot the first time. Uh, I watched it again. I don't think I understood the plot the second time. <laughs> did you? Were you able to follow what was going on? Like, did it all make sense to you as it was happening? I th- yeah, I think it did actually. Um, okay. Maybe maybe uh, it's just me. I I, well, I tend to uh, to glaze over with the details of of financial speculation. Uh, which, uh, you know, in, in Wolf of Wall Street, whenever uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is, like, starting to uh, 
to explain like the details of one of his scams. He's like, you're, you're not interested in this. Let's just move on. Uh, Largent goes through all of the details of it in a step-by-step <laughs> and it's never really explaining. Like there's no narrator. I mean, it's a silent film obviously, right. but uh, it's just as the scam is unfolding, it just takes you through every, every step of it. And uh, yeah, I, I was lost at times, but that might just be my own tendency to glaze over on financial matters. Well, yeah, and I don't think those I don't think those matters are are crucial to to enjoying this movie. Um, well, have you read any Zola? I, I have not. Okay, um, I I have I've read a, a two of the twenty uh, books in his series, and and this is the eighteenth. This is an adaptation of the eighteenth book in his famous series, and I will not pronounce the French title of the series because I'm horrible. <laughs> My French is absolutely horrible. Um, but I've read the books Nana and uh, The Beast Within, and I love both of them. I'm, I'm, I consider myself a Zola fan. Um, and so another reason I liked this movie was it felt like a Zola book. Like, I mean, they translated this really, really well into a movie. Um, I, you know, I don't know of any other Zola adaptations that I've seen. I don't think I have. Um, but I can't see any being more and I had like I said I haven't read this book in particular but knowing Zola's style and the way that he kind of ties these larger social themes into these he brings it into these you know um kind of smaller scale characters lives and stuff um well I was as I I understand him he's more of like a a journalist to kind of realist novel uh novelist yeah well yeah much more kind of kind of fact-based and uh which is is wildly at odds with the with the impressionist film technique, and I don't know that I've ever really seen that that mixture in a film before. Like normally, your 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 crazy visual movies are not all that specific in, you know, the the kind of details of of the plots. Right. Yeah. No. And that's that's why I actually really responded to this movie is that I've. I've they, in terms of like plotting and storytelling, I, I feel like they really followed the template of of Zola, but then they shot it in a very cinematic way because you know you you don't you don't film a book, you know what I mean? Like, and so I feel like the the marriage of those two very disparate elements is what makes this movie work so well, and uh, and and so like when like for example like about two thirds of the way through the movie, it does get a little repetitive, you know, um, you know, maybe like the third time Sicard, like, um, you know, does some, you know, evil machination to like, you know, get under, um, you know, to, to, to kind of, uh, force himself mani- upon the, yeah, the, or, the or manipulate wife. somebody or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it gets a little, it might get a little repetitive, but the filmmaking, the visual style of it, is so consistently awesome that you're just like, you know, that kind of carries the weight when, when you kind of start to slip in terms of storytelling, maybe. Um, and yeah, I just, and this movie's awesome. (laughs) I had a lot of fun with it. Um, there's some, there's some allusions here, uh, character wise, um, that I think aren't, they're obvious, but they're not, they don't bludgeon you so much. Um, the uh, the character of Sicard, um, who, who uh, Pierre Alcove, maybe is how you spell his name yes. uh, or pronounce his name. He's uh, he's really good. I think he's really great here. Uh, he's the main character. Yeah, um, he's, he's fantastic. And, and uh, Alfred Abel uh, 
plays uh, the his rival uh, financier Gunderman. Gunderman, um, he's a he's a cool character. Um, but you see, in a couple of times in the movie, they show Sicard in his office, and he's got um, a little statue of a general, uh, Napoleon, Napoleon. <laughs> if yeah. you will, um, and he clearly identifies with that as as like this kind of you know general like you know he's he's very um strategic yeah, he'll, he'll in, in his he'll stick his hand in his vest in the, yeah, like the napoleonic pose right and and his actions are very napoleonic you know he he you know, or or even just if you want to be more general about it he's he's like a general where he kind of sits on the sidelines and sends these other people into battle you know namely this uh this um, pilot guy, you know, who he kind of just leeches onto and sends him off to do, to kind of make his fortune for him, like a general would send, you know, a private into battle or something like that. And Hamlin, the guy that plays the, the, the character of the, uh, the pilot, I don't know the actor that plays, uh, Henry Victor, yeah. uh, plays Jacques Hamelin or Hamlin. Hamlin. Uh, he notably, and this, it's kind of cheesy, you know, but it kind of works in the melodrama. Um, his character is going blind um, throughout the course of the movie, which is clearly, uh, you know, tying into the fact that he's blind to all of the horrible stuff that's been happening to him, like behind his back, like having Sicard not only fleece him, but like totally force himself onto his woman and stuff. But those things work in this kind of movie, you know, like in, in a, maybe a more contemporary movie or something else where it'd be like a little more heavy handed. Uh, it works in, in this kind of melodramatic heightened mode um, in this movie. And I think it's, I think it's cool. Yeah. I think, I think that, uh, that Napoleon identification that, that Sicard has, like he, he sees himself as a Napoleonic figure. I think that, uh, that also ties in with his relationship with Gunderman, which is, is the really fascinating, uh, 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 character relationship in the film to me like the the hamlins uh don't really interest me all that much although although the wife is very pretty um uh, uh, oh, uh hot damn yeah uh <laughs> it's it's that that relationship with with gunderman and, and Gunderman gunderman is the opposite of of sicard in every way gunderman is fat and he's sweaty and he's messy and he's always yelling and he's you know he gestures vociferously and he's always just very frantic and running around and he's really passionately interested in making money by any means necessary. Whereas as Gunderman is, is cool and he's always, you know, dressed impeccably in a tuxedo and he sits calmly in a chair petting his little dogs and he speaks quietly, you know, it's a silent film, but he speaks quietly and, and Gunderman is all, is all just class and refinement and, and old world where, whereas Sicard is, is like Napoleon. He's he is not from money. He he is just he's you know driven by his own kind of drive to driven by his own drive to <laughs> to to succeed to to make money and to and to amass power. And he's he's totally a self made man. And he just gets slapped down by Gunderman in the end. And oh it's, yeah, it's it's fantastic. And he's I have a hard time trying to figure out who is the more evil character they're both basically awful human beings yeah they 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 are they're like you know two sides of a coin or whatever and, um, and then you've got brigitte helm slinking around on the margins of everything like a like a spider just sucking off of all of them i was gonna she's, she's say great. that she 
she might be the most evil. <laughs> yeah. um, but she, but sa- she saves Sicard's life. No, she does. And, and, you know, she does a lot of stuff out of spite and bitterness, but, um, but yeah, she's, she's not the one, um, ruining people. Um, yeah. although she does, you know, this was, she a, does get, this was a co-production with, uh, with the German film studio UFA, if I remember correctly. And I think as, as part of the deal, they had to cast some, some German actors. So I think that's kind of how Brigitte Helm ended up in the story. Like you could lift her character out of the film entirely and it wouldn't really change anything, but just having her in it, she's just such an, an unstable presence. And and Brigitte Helm, um, if you don't know, was the the star of uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis. She played the the robot, right? And and she's like gets the first billing in the movie, even though she she doesn't play hardly any role at all in the in the narrative up until the end when things kind of come together a little bit. She's not a necessary part of it, but they give her something to do. And for the most part, she's just slinking along in, in, <laughs> in the shadows, just, just being evil. Yeah. And I, but I think adding that is, uh, is what makes this movie, uh, so cool you know yeah, like they def- could definitely i like I, I love her yeah. I, I would not want the movie without her in it but it's just it's such an odd thing to put in a film there's the scene with her um and she's talking to sicard and she um i can't remember the exact exchange but she like lies down on a bed or a sofa or something yeah and uh She's basically like having an orgasm while she's talking to him. Like, I mean, it's really graphic. Like, she's, she's, I mean, she's yeah. wearing a, you know, this like really nice evening dress and stuff while she's doing it, but she's like sliding up the, uh, the couch there. Yeah, she's, and she's basically getting off on her scheme to, to ruin him and, and her enjoyment of, of his misery. Yeah. It's, it's, it's intense. Yeah. Um, it's, it's good times. <laughs> well, speaking of intense uh, and not in a good way, um, I mean, in a filmmaking way, it's really great. But um, Sicard, as we mentioned, um, he also lusts after um, the wife of Hamlin. Um, and there are a couple of scenes with him um, doing that. And and throughout the movie, even even prior to this, you know, his character, like you said, he's kind of he's gross and kind of bloated and sweaty and um you know so he's so he's not like sympathetic or whatever but the first scene after they've he's kind of back on top after um hamlin has made his flight and and uh he's made it across the the ocean and uh sicard's got all this you know he's he's raking in the money and he goes into her bedroom and she's standing at the window really happy because he survived her husband survived and he's shot like in the shadows and he is just the most uh he looks lascivious. like a, I mean it's just disgusting. He looks like a fat Dracula. <laughs> <I mean, laughs> Samuel Hung is a fat Dracula. <laughs> uh, and then there's the scene later where he tries to force himself on her and this is where the filmmaking uh like the camera work really um heightens the the mood of the film because it is right there in the middle of them and um it's it's just loose and and you just see random body parts um flailing uh, and you can't really make out exactly what's going on it's kind of like a christopher nolan fight scene but used for actually like a good reason and uh it's very unlike any uh, christopher nolan fight scene 
yeah it's it's very disturbing here because you, yeah. you know he cuts from like him pawing at her shoulder or something and then you see like her kneecap or something and then like she runs away it's just it, it's really intense yeah yeah <laughs> it's good stuff <laughs> it's good stuff man it's good stuff well with that that's our discussion of l'argent <laughs> <laughs> After Mike talks about the attempted rape, we'll end it on the attempted rape. I think that's a rule in comedy. <laughs> uh, so we're going to listen to uh, Cindy Lauper, the immortal Cindy Lauper, with uh, her song "Money Changes Everything." Cindy, thanks. That is our show for this week. We will be back in two weeks. We're going to talk about uh, another new movie, uh, Spike Jones's Her. And along with that, we're going to talk about another silent movie, Ernst Lubitsch's The Doll. And I haven't seen either of these. Mike, you saw The Doll last year. I did. I really liked that movie. And it, it seems to me like they uh, should have a lot in common from what I understand about both of them. Do you, do you agree? Uh, wooden performances. <laughs> that was a little dig at Scarlett Johansson there. Um, I, yeah, I think, I think they will work just fine. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to her. I'm not, I'm not dismissing her. If you want to read Mike Wright about The Doll and a bunch of other movies, as well as as me writing about a bunch of movies, you can head over to the Rupert Pupkin Speaks blog, where where Rupert himself was was nice enough to ask us to to list some of our favorite film discoveries of 2013, and uh, we actually did a show about that, but most of the movies I think we write about, we didn't talk about on the show, so it's all new film discoveries from 2013, all new. or mostly new. Uh, and I'll put a, a link for that in the uh, in the post for this show, so you can check that out at the georgesandershow.blogspot.com. Uh, if you are in the New York area this week, you should be uh, going to the Aesthetics of Shadow series at the Museum of Modern Art. And this is a, a really cool idea for a series. It's basically based on like the history of shadows in Japanese cinema throughout different periods. 
And what they're playing this week is a movie that I actually talked about on the last episodes of The George Sanders Show, which is Hiroshi Shimizu's Japanese Girls at the Harbor. That's playing on Tuesday, January 14th and Wednesday, January 15th at MoMA. So you can go and check it out for yourself and see why it was my number two film of 1933. That's great. Well, if you're in in the neighborhood... uh... On Friday, January 24th at the Museum of the Moving Image, uh, they're going to be starting a series of musicals, uh, See It Big Musicals, they're calling it, and they're they're kicking it off um, at 7 p.m. with uh, Bob Fosse's All That Jazz, which is a film that uh, we ran for Metro Classics uh, back in the day and was a film that really blew me away. I mean, it kicked my behind. I, I, I can't say enough great things about all that jazz. Um, it's one that I want to revisit and uh, show my girlfriend, uh, who's a, she's a big fan of musicals and she hasn't seen that one. And it, it's, there's no, there's no musical quite like all that jazz. <laughs> I'll just say that much. It's a great movie. I, I love Bob Fosse. I love all things Fosse. I love, I love if Bob Fosse is in a movie for five minutes, I will love that movie. Have you read the new biography of him that just came out? No, I don't read books. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you're on the internet, you can find us at thegeorgesandershow.blogspot.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter at geosandershow, and you can email us at thegeorgesandershow at gmail.com. Uh, I've got nothing else to say this week, and this closet's getting a little cramped, so <laughs> I think it's time for George to sing us home. What do you think, Sean? Yes. You must remember this. A kiss is just a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. And when two lovers woo, they still say I love you. On that you can rely. No matter what the future brings, Never out of date Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man And man must have his mate That no one can deny It's still the same old story A fight for love and glory a case of do or die. The world will always welcome lovers as time goes by. The only people that actually watch the Golden Globes are drunks and fools. <laughs>